This is Point of View, a podcast exploring today's digital landscape through a critical lens. Each episode, Gil Rosen, our Chief Marketing Officer at Amdocs, will interview leading authors, entrepreneurs, and experts to help listeners view the online world from a different vantage point and demystify some of your most burning questions. We're discussing everything from fast fashion to the psychology of the internet, underscoring it all with a forward-thinking perspective. Are you ready for the future? Let's get digital. Today, we're exploring the future. Gerd Leonard is a German futurist, speaker, and author of several books, including Technology First Humanity, who specializes in the debate between the intersection of technology, society, and economic impact. Gil and Gerd sit down to discuss how COVID-19 exposed several shortcomings in today's society, both from a healthcare and economic perspective. They dive into what can be done to create solutions, the impact of the free market capitalism, and the incentives needed to create a better society for everyone. Here's the interview. So I'm, I'm going to ask you a yes or no question to begin with, and then we can go deeper. Are we doomed? No. No. <laughs> okay, no. we're not doomed. Okay, <laughs> that's good. Okay, so now, so now we can uh, breathe a sigh of relief and, and, and get started. So, you know, you, you basically have a very interesting perspective of how things will develop, the future, the technology, economy. Can, can you take us through what you think are maybe the fundamental things that you think need to be changed and maybe start with what Corona exposed to society, what is not working? Yeah, so well, to make it short, you know, Corona has been a giant accelerator uh, of the things that were there before Corona. So, for example, technology was already a, a very big deal before Corona. But in Corona, everything became virtual and we went online for conferences. Everything became remote and technology has exploded. And before Corona, for example, we already had issues about inequality and bad healthcare systems and basically a failure of the free market economy. And with Corona, we have even more of the bad things also. For example, inequality has increased because obviously people who are not well off are even worse off than before. So we had kind of a, a great acceleration. But really what Corona has done is kind of created a pivot point between the past and the future. So the future is already here, and now we're making different decisions because we've learned a lot in the corona time. For example, that we have to be prepared, that we have to trust science, that we have to collaborate. And now we're looking at climate change and saying, okay, the same thing that we had to do for corona or have to do is probably going to be necessary for climate change. So there's many good things about the crisis. You know, every crisis is also an opportunity. We're heading into a new decade Everything that we've known is subject for discussion now. The business model, capitalism, you know, how we look at the future, where we put our money. You know, so I, I, I totally subscribe to the, uh, to the notion that uh, Corona is probably one of the biggest opportunities. You know, I'm, I'm putting the, 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 impact, the health impact of the pandemic aside, you know, of course, that's terrible, tragic. But talking about a, a, a reset in society doesn't happen. I mean, it hasn't happened, and this is an amazing opportunity. First of all, do you think somebody has it figured out, you know, because you talk a lot about capitalism and the future of capitalism and maybe how a technology will be involved. Do you think we actually have it figured out, or are we still in this kind of scrambling mode? 
I think we know what has to happen. Uh, it's quite clear that the current economic system, as we know it, will not work in the future. It's basically unfit for the future. So the idea of uh, basically doing whatever is profit and growth and free market capitalism, not to say that we have much of an alternative, <laughs> the free market capitalism that we've had just simply will not work to fix climate change. It will not bring better health care on a global level. It will not fix inequality. It will not take care of intelligent machines, uh, artificial intelligence threats, and all those things that are common threats for us, food, water, poverty, equality, that's going to take a little bit more hand-holding. So now we're inventing the way that the market works, and that has also been there before COVID, what's called the stakeholder economy. So it's no longer important to just have the shareholder be most important, which is profit and growth, but everybody in the food chain. It's been a worldwide discussion, and I call this people, planet, purpose, and prosperity. It's essentially a new way of looking at what we want, and how we have to organize the world. And it's quite clear if we want to be happy in the future and have what I call a good future, we're gonna to have to rethink how things work in a very fundamental way, not just a little bit of, of like, you know, giving a stimulus package. We'll have to be a little bit more than that. So I think, you know, the problems that we usually face and what you're actually saying makes perfect sense. What I'm interested to understand in this new system is the fundamental incentive, because what has been probably super effective in capitalism is that specific people have a very specific incentive to sell a product because it brings them profit. How do you recalibrate the incentive when the impact is not immediate? Yeah, you know, in general, I think that uh, humans don't change voluntarily or just because we should, you know, by making the argument that we should, we change really only for two reasons, and that's pain and love. I mean, COVID has brought a lot of pain and we had to change as a result. We didn't want to get sick, so now we're wearing masks and we're getting vaccines, you know? So we, we adapted, or we fall in love with an idea, or we fall in love with a country, or we fall in love with a concept, or of course a person, and this is how we change. So Jeff Bezos fell in love with the ebook reader, and that didn't exist, and he made one. <laughs> you know? And now it's the biggest form of reading in the world. That's how we change. And if we really want to have changes in the world, then we have to realize both potential threats, like we did with COVID or the financial crisis, right? or before that, of course, uh, all kinds of other things, including World War II and so on. But we experienced pain, and then we changed. Like, you know, we had nuclear weapons, Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And then it took us 20 years to say, you know what, if we have 5,000 more nuclear weapons being used, then it's game over, right? So we have to get together and figure out the way forward. And exactly the same thing is happening here. We've had COVID and now we're putting priority on healthcare and science and collaboration and global treatments, invention and so on. And the next thing we're going to see is intelligent machines. And, and when something goes wrong, that's when we're going to react and say, we can't have this because it's not good. <laughs> Basically, that's how we work. And the key thing to understand is, and this is why I say the future is better than we think, right? because we have in our hands basically all of the necessary tools to make life kind of a paradise. Right? We can solve water with technology. We can solve food. We can solve diseases now, 12 months for a vaccine, right? I mean, that's mind-boggling. Artificial intelligence helps with that too, right? 
But the question is, are we going to do the right thing with all the cool tech that we have? You brought up the, the, the issue of technology, no doubt that in healthcare it's, it's, it's allowed for, you know, for quantum leaps in, in, in capabilities. I wonder when you look at the evolution of AI and machine learning and robotics, and then you get the replacement of many human tasks by, by these capabilities, this new equilibrium is slightly more complex than the utopics of we can use this technology for good. Do you really think we'll need like almost like a, and I'm going to say maybe something extreme, like a environmental dictatorship to fix things, right? Great quote by E.O. Wilson, right, who said, we have strange situation that we have paleolithic emotions, we have medieval institutions, but godlike technology. Yeah. <laughs> so, 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 and that is going to create all kinds of problems. So really what we have to say, we have to say, you know what, if we want a good future, then we have to decide on what that means, which means not dying, <laughs> you know, and, and having self-realization, those kind of basic happiness and so on. And then we have to decide how we would best organize it, right? For example, it's quite clear that technology uh, will bring automation to pretty much every job, not just the factory or driving or flying, but also financial advisors and bankers, even rabbis. You know? It's like we're going to be able to do things with technology that we used to do. And technology will take care of pretty much all of the routines. And really what we have to say, and this is why we need wise governance and wise politician, which is kind of an oxymoron, I guess, that we <laughs> need people to understand actually what's happening and to, to prepare us wisely. And I always said in my last book also that we need sort of a digital ethics council. You know, we need a council of wise people who say, okay, yeah, we could do that. We could connect my brain to the internet and I become superhuman. But is it a good idea? And what are the rules? Right? And, and this is fundamentally important because here's the thing. In the next 10 years, we're crossing the threshold to where technology is becoming essentially limitlessly powerful. Basically, whatever we can want to do with technology, we will be able to do that. We will be able to connect the brain to the internet. And then the question is why? And who's in charge? And who has the benefit? So these are the important questions really about why, not if. Going to your quote, you know, the medieval institutions. Are countries medieval institutions? Or is the notion of countries border? Because you talk about a council. This sounds to me more like a Star Wars, uh, this imaginary galactic council that makes decisions on behalf of humanity. It's not a, it's not a government. And then people get paranoid and say, you know, are we talking about a world government? Oh, you know, there you go. So what do you think yeah. the roles of, a, of countries will be? There's no doubt that we're going to head to a global government in the next 20 years. Because wow. simply for That's big. very simple, very straightforward reasons. For example, in Europe, we're becoming the United States of Europe. You know, I live in Switzerland, which is, isn't part of it, but I am German. But Europe is uniting in the sense of saying, you know what, cyber warfare diseases, pandemic, food, water, energy. I mean, if we don't collaborate, it's, it's game over, right? If Americans or, or Europeans would start to ban artificial intelligence, you know, with really super intelligent machines, but China would not, you know, then we have a problem. <laughs> so basically what's happening is we're heading towards a place to where the global rules of engagement on the bottom line, on the lowest denominator, like nuclear weapons, they have to come together. And this is what's happening right now, for example, as we're making laws about intelligent drones that kill people without human supervision. 
right? Or as we're making new rules for climate change, we're going to see a carbon tax on every airplane flight you take and on every pound of meat that you eat. It's like the COVID crisis. You know, we wanted to stay alive. We didn't want to get sick. We didn't want our kids to get sick. So we did everything that was necessary, even though it was dramatic. And now the same thing will happen with climate change. The same thing will happen with geoengineering and genome changes of the human and so on. This is all going to be the objective, you know, what is best for us, you know, in the aggregate. It's most likely going to be not one, probably three, don't you think? There'll be like China, let's say the United States and the United States of Europe, and they're going to collaborate, but it's not like one. Do you really see the globe getting together under one world government? Is that even possible, you think? I'm talking about the council. You know, Star Trek makes a good example. In fact, it does, uh, because that council doesn't make any laws. You know, it just says, if we do that, it's really stupid, right? We don't recommend it. (laughs) And basically, when you have people who do that, like you have now efforts in the European Commission to build this kind of thing, where the commission is essentially saying, you know, if we use artificial intelligence, it can't be used to screen your face while you're looking to get a bank application or a loan application, because there's all kinds of issues with that, right? And until we have it figured out, then we should probably just keep the human in the loop and, and play it safe. You know? Because here's the existential question. Right? What technology is going to allow us to prosper and flourish as humans? Which means you know, all the things that we need to be human, not just money. And which technology will dehumanize us, take the human away? Because if we go down that road, then in 20 years, it, you know, we essentially are just the pets of the machines. Ethics are not objective, they're subjective. They, they depend um, on your background. I would argue that a lot of ethics is universal, as long as you keep it to the bottom line. You know, there is an ethics that says we should not kill each other that most people subscribe to. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and there are ethics like, okay, I want my kids to do better than I do. You know, on the lowest common denominator, people very much want the same thing. If you go high up and you say, well, it should, you know, alcohol be legal or, or, you know, those are different stories. They're already granular. But on the bottom line, everybody wants to be happy. Nobody wants to die quickly and painfully. You know, those are things that we all agree on. And the United Nations has been pursuing that agenda for a long time, you know, human rights. And now we're talking about digital rights, right? And now we're talking about the rights of, of humans together, you know, in the aggregate. And this is already happening. I mean, it's quite clear If we go on as we have, and we only have one principle, which is financial fulfillment, it's 20 years and then it's game over. You're an optimist. I think you're an optimist. And I, yes, I, 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 I tend to be too. And I, so I want to try to describe how do you think this will play out? So, but, but take it to the micro level. You know, I'm a, you know, let's go 20 years from now, right? And, and everything that you've said has actually been enacted in, in, in the best way possible. So governments, Uh, you know, did the right things and there was no conflict and the technology was put for good use. And now there are 20 billion people on the globe, on Earth. What does your day look like when machines do your... Uh, are we just going to the beach and enjoying something called universal income? What's happening? How, is it, how does this thing well, work? Actually, for the first thing is that we're not going to be 20 billion people. Uh, there's a bunch of things that are already changed, that are changing now. We have reached the peak of multiplication of humans. You know, we are still adding about 85 million a year. 
Okay. Okay. But the number is vastly lower than the Club of Rome or anybody else has predicted because people are moving to cities. People are getting more connected and the number of kids are shrinking. And so we're going to end up being between 10 and 12 billion, at which point we'll be capable of space travel. It's not population that's going to be the issue. It's distribution of benefits. So if technology makes it so that everything becoming more cheaper and efficient, for example, healthcare, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, I can use electronic devices to scan my skin, mm -hmm. to send my data to the, to the doctor, mm -hmm. and 80% of doctor's visits could be left out because my data is in the cloud. I can put my DNA in the cloud if it's secure, and then the cloud would tell me if I have a likelihood for cancer or diabetes before I get sick. So we could shave off 90% of the cost of healthcare by being smart. By, by using technology. But of course, it would have to be secured, whole different story. And when that happens, when we have these benefits, we have to distribute the benefits. And distribution of benefits is the question of equality, of policy, and so on. Because what we have now is that the, the benefits of technology are going to roughly 10% of the population. And those are the ones that, that hold uh, stocks and shares in technology companies and, and people like us, you know, to be fair, that are pretty much in that 10%, you know, and the lower 90% is not getting the benefit. And so for that to change, we would need to have a different logic. And that involves, of course, a different, uh, what Al Gore called sustainable capitalism, right? A new form of capitalism. And that has been widely discussed now. And this already is happening, uh, for example, you know, if we're going to turn the world around and no longer use fossil fuels, what's called decarbonization, mm -hmm. that is the biggest business opportunity ever in the history of, of the last 100 years. It's not just throwing money away. It's creating 100 million new jobs. I mean, imagine you know, if we can actually solve this and in 10 years, uh, energy would be plenty. That would be a starting point for kind of a nirvana, right? So when the nirvana happens, so to speak, then it's a question for us to say, well, maybe today I don't have to work 10 hours to be worthy, you know, to, to make money. I can only work two hours and get the same money because it's there. Is this what is also mm -hmm. known as universal income? Can I, can I call it that? You can. There's all different versions of universal income. One of them would be a negative income tax. So if you don't make enough, you get... Topped up by the, okay. by the government, right? But I, I think what's going to happen, which is much better, is that many things that we need will just be provided. So healthcare first, obviously. Yeah. Um, and then food, shelter, water. Right? Be provided because it's it's becoming so cheap. Imagine energy is so cheap that we can give it away. Like music today, <laughs> it's very cheap. $10 a month gets you 60 million songs, right? And that's all happening because of technology. So it's all there. We just have to make sure that we have the right distribution and that we set the right priorities and that we make the right rules and we think of us as a collective target rather than, you know, individual goals that we want to reach. But, you know, I'm, I'm wondering because of the mega giant companies that actually create progress. Look at, you know, you talked about being space-bound and, and look who's leading that. It's, it's not NASA, it's, it's Elon Musk and, and Jeff Bezos. Why are they as private individuals doing it? They're doing it because they accumulated an incredible amount of money through capitalism that allows them to now, as a hobby, let's call it, explore space. So in this new system, where is the money to do this R&D 
because progress is done through research and development, and the money for research and development is accumulated via the capitalistic side. What's the new equation now? Yeah, well, of course, you know, the first thing is this is not a black or white question. You can have some parts of the market be managed, for example, climate change would have to be managed, right? Mm -hmm. It's not going to be a free market economy for, for climate change because right now it will cost money. Right? There's a larger goal, which is to stay alive, you know, that makes it worthy. So you have a managed economy and you can have a free market economy when it's about things like computers and cell phones and services and so on. Uh, and this is already happening, of course, in parallel. What we can do is to say, you know what, every problem has a market solution because somebody will create a market. And, and that's just simply not true. Look what happened with Facebook. Facebook is a dominating force, manipulating the world's information flow, makes $160 million profit per day. And the benefit of Facebook is going to six cities in the U.S. That's it. And, and it has, sub, has basically destroyed media, destroyed the meaning of the word friendship, and destroyed trust in the Internet. So you like Facebook. <laughs> so, I'm kidding. <laughs> no, but, you know, so, I mean, the bottom line is, okay, some of that will work and some of it will not. And the other thing is, when you look at the beginning of capitalism, you know, 20 years ago, not the beginning, but the sort of peak of traditional capitalism, you know, Milton Friedman and so on, it worked fine because there was lots of room to go. In other words, if the entire world isn't digital, then anybody who's a digitizer will make lots of money, right? Mm -hmm. But when the entire world is connected, there's, there's whole different issues about all of that. Right? And we can't use the same principle that says, okay, it's okay down here. And when we're up the exponential curve, it's no longer okay. Like a little data breach is fine. We survive, right? But a data breach on a constant level and a data breach with my DNA, you know, that is not okay, but it's the same principle. Right? So we have to be much smarter about leaving enough room, not over-regulating, you know, precaution and proaction combining. And that is a tough job, you know, for anybody who's, uh, who's kind of in, in the policy section. Yeah, because, uh, you know, my, my, my follow-up question was really to say, Let's imagine that we could now have a series, uh, like a plan, right? Let's try to like um, outline like a five-step plan over the next, again, one, five, 20 years. What are the like immediate things that you think need to be done that actually start to roll the ball in the right direction and steer it from the, let's just call it the classic neo-capitalism to something more sustainable? Actually? Yeah, I mean, let's, let's be clear first, you know, we don't really have an alternative to capitalism. Uh, socialism and, and other isms have been tried and have failed miserably. Not to say that Marx or any of those uh, right minds were necessarily wrong with the ideas, but it didn't work out. <laughs> so what we have here is the idea of the free market, and then we have the idea of a free market that's exponentially changing. Right? When that comes together, uh, then we have to form this kind of idea of what's called post-capitalism or new capitalism or sustainable capitalism. And, and this is already happening all around us. I mean, just look around. All the companies that are saying right now that the future is net zero, that's going to cost money. I mean, every company in the world is, is, is now going on the agenda. So the most urgent topic definitely is climate change. And we have to do that now. And that's going to happen later this year when we're a little bit further out of COVID. That's the next big agenda. And it's going to be painful. Because it means change, right? And, and nobody changes voluntarily. So, however, also a big opportunity. And then the next one is technology. You know, we can't always say whatever technology can do is, is, is okay, right? 
That's called dataism or, you know, technology as a religion, like Elon Musk likes to talk about. You know? It's basically technology will solve every problem. Well, it will not. You know, technology will not solve social, cultural, political, human problems. It will make them worse, it makes them more efficient. <laughs> right? So there again, with, with technology, we're going to have to ask a simple question. It's like, how much of technology is too much technology? Think about this for a second. The next move after what we do now, which is video conferencing, mm -hmm. is virtual conferencing with glasses or helmets or implants, whatever. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Imagine that day where we're not going to just have 4 billion people on mobile phones, but we have every person connected with 5G, 10G, whatever, with a virtual connection where they can live in a virtual environment. Imagine what that will do for social, political, cultural, economic matters, right? And, and how confusing it will be for people. And there we have to say, well, it could be great for business, you know, to be Tom Cruise in Minority Report, you know, go in the data, pull it out, you know. Mm -hmm. But what would it do to us as humans? And what are we trying to do here? Are we trying to optimize the economic milking machine? Or are we, are we trying to optimize human happiness? You know, what, what's the objective? When I look at my relationship with technology and my relationship with people, it's based on where and how I grew up. The generation that is now being born and will be born in the next few years, which is basically growing up with a much more advanced uh, surrounding. And they have to make up the rules or they actually decide or consider what you just described as maybe confusing. For them, it's like, this is how things are. And maybe then their ethics scale is moved in a kind of a, you know, to somewhere else that I can't even describe. Just looking at the past, technology has always served us net to our benefit, right? Of course, there's always bad things, but we were, man, we were bad as humans way before we even had digital or computers. We were slaying each other, right? We were conquering. We were, uh, you know, we were doing horrible stuff without technology. And I think technology actually exposes us to people who we don't even know and then makes it us even closer to people that we never considered that could be close to us. I'm really wondering on, on the practicality that moves us from, you know, when I listen to everything that you say, I, I sign up, where do I sign up? And then I'm wondering, what is the actual step that needs to happen? Yeah, well, first, you know, I, I want to riff off Winston Churchill and say that you can always trust humans to do the right thing after they've tried everything else. <laughs> and he said that about Americans, so I'm saying that about humans. Uh, so, for example, in the COVID crisis, you know, first, we, we failed, completely failed to collaborate. America failed, every country failed, except for New Zealand and Iceland. <laughs> but then we realized, okay, we really got to do something. So we pulled together and we got the vaccine and now America's booming again, right? And of course, a new government and all that. But basically we can, and we usually do the right thing. We make lots of mistakes, but we're not unkind. We're not evil. You know, I believe that humans are in principle capable of doing that. So I believe that humans are capable of finding a way into the future that will serve most of us in, a, in an equally good way. And second, when we think about technology, it's, it's been clear from the beginning that technology is morally neutral until we use it. Hmm. William Gibson. I can use a hammer and build a house, or I can go and kill somebody with a hammer. I can use AI to build a software uh, or, or to make a website or whatever, or I can use AI to try to kill somebody. 
So it is not the technology that's at issue, it's the use of it and the balance. And this is why I say, you know, the key thing is too much of a good thing can be a very bad thing. Too much military, not a good thing. No military, probably also not a good thing. <laughs> too much coffee, too much drugs, cigarettes, alcohol, food. Yeah, very big problem. So if we have too much technology, it takes away our humanity, which because our, you know humans are not technologies. And that's why the whole idea of artificial intelligence is basically just intelligent assistance at this point. Yeah? But going back to humans, so basically to keep us human, we have to protect what makes us human. And protection means like a national park, you know, basically. So mistakes, serendipity, discovery, accident, privacy, opinions, emotions, foresight, intuition, all that stuff computers know nothing about. The computers know the value of everything, but the feeling of nothing. And we are the opposite. You know, we're, we're primarily run by feelings and by, by weird things that we can't really explain. Hmm. And so this is very important that we protect this. So if you're saying that we're going to use technology to live to be 200 years old, and we're going to increase our IQ to 500,000 using technology, that's all nice and fine, but we won't be human then. And that is the question of if that's what you want. There are people who want that, transhumanist, you know, singularity, uh, and so on. Maybe to some degree, Ray Kurzweil has promoted that agenda, a fellow futurist, right? Mm -hmm. But I really believe that in order to get the best of both worlds, we have to embrace technology and use it for the best, and then we have to not become technology. When we become technology, we're just a commodity. If you're going to connect your brain to the internet, you may as well just uh, sign up to be a robot's pet. So basically, this is something that I wasn't uh, aware of from a, like, a, like a camp perspective. There's now a camp, and correct me if I'm wrong, I'm just uh, uh, keying off from what you said. There is a camp of we can connect the technology and become transhumanists, and that's something else. That's not being a human. And there is a camp that says we should not do it. It should, it should be against our ethics. We should use technology to the maximum, but keep it separate from humans. Uh, that may be a little bit of a simplification, but basically the question is what do we want in the future? Right? And the question is, what do you value? Do, do you want to remain human? Are you a humanist? Or are you essentially an evolutionist or somebody that wants to move on to the highest possible point and, and leave what's called human limitations behind? You know? Marshall McLuhan, famous uh, media futurist in the 70s, said, whenever we extend our body, our human existence, we also amputate. So we built the television, and what did we amputate? Stuff like making music in the living room at home, right? We built the telephone, we built the internet, and in many ways it was okay. We came out fine. Yeah. But now we're building stuff. Every week we're building something. And we're constantly extending something, like you know, tracking everybody on the mobile phone, because allegedly it's more secure. Yeah, we can do that, but what do we amputate? Well, clearly, privacy, right? Mm -hmm. And if the government is good, nobody cares. But the, if the government is not so good, Big problem. Basically, we have to we have to be aware of this, you know, as we're moving forward as to what exactly are we trying to reach here and who is in charge of that goal. And how exactly are we going to make sure that it comes out 98% good for us? And there's always going to be side effects, clearly, in a connected society. That's the key issue. I think it's a 
it's an amazing and deep philosophical discussion to have. And I think it's a, it makes out for a very interesting future. I, I wonder if we can take it down now and come back from the future of transhumanists versus humanists. And if you can connect people to who are listening to really, you know, what you think that on an individual level they can do to contribute to what you believe to be the right direction that relates to sustainability, to caring for, for the community, for looking beyond profits. What, what do you think are the, like, uh, the short manifesto for us on the street level that we need to take in our back pockets? Well, I think first it's good to notice, you know, as, I, as I like to say, the future is better than we think. You know, the, the image of the future is bad these days, mostly because of COVID, but because of Netflix and Hollywood and so on. Every time you see something about the future, it's robots killing each other and us, of course. <laughs> <laughs> so the future is much better than that. The future is also much more designable. You would you'd be surprised how many people uh, these days are saying, well, the future is going to happen. There's not much I can do about it. It's completely wrong. We are making the future with our every action and inaction every day, all of us. Whether it's little actions or big actions, or if we're CEOs or not, doesn't matter. You know, the future is created by us. It's not fixed. Right? Yep. Um, and the other thing is that people think about the future as tomorrow. That's no longer true. The future is a mindset. The future is in our heads. The future is already here. So if you care to look, you can see the future everywhere, everywhere. And then all you need is like a little bit of imagination to imagine how in five years that would change our lives. Like, for example, mobile devices have made free phone calls. You know? So my advice for people would be to say, first, you should spend one hour a day in the future. Hmm. One hour is all I ask. Reading some books, watching some good films, not Hollywood films, but documentaries and other, listening to podcasts, being tuned up. Because when you develop what I call the future mindset, which essentially is like, you know, having large ears to hear the future, then you're future-proof because you will always come up with the possibility of saying, you know, I thought about this before. I have a reaction and I can make a move. I can be resilient and agile right? and open because the future is happening so quick. The future is not about 10 years. It's about 10 months, 10 days. Mm -hmm. right? So future mindset, that's, that's one thing. The other thing, is to have, to have an open attitude and question your assumptions. So, for example, people are assuming now that basically there's things that are fixed that are always going to be like this. But, you know, years ago, I worked for one of the big German car companies, and they said, we're assuming in the future cars are going to be there and people will use them. And so we're perfecting the diesel engine. We're making it better. Mm -hmm. And seven years ago, I said, you know what? In 10 years, you probably won't need a diesel engine. No engine at all except for software. It was laughter. So we need to question our assumptions about what we need, what we don't need, how the world is, and how the world is not. And finally, I'd like to point to Barbara Hubbard, who is um, Buckminster Fuller's uh, disciple, a famous futurist, who said, as we see the future, so we act. And as we act, so we become. So whatever you expect from the future, if you expect bad things, you'll probably get bad things. So we'll have to train ourselves to look at good things and, and make those happen. I think that is the way of, of looking at the future. Well, that's a great way to wrap up. Super interesting. Don't make assumptions. Live the future today and be good and don't think bad. It's been great talking to you, right. Geld. And I hope Thank to you. see you in person soon and not via some technology. Sounds good. Thank you. 
Gerd considers the impact of technology not just from a future-focused perspective, but one backed by history. By looking at the past, he tries to put into context the potential that our society has with the new tools we have developed. One thing is clear from our conversation. Change needs to happen. But for effective transformation to occur, it will require a shift in our behaviors, the incentives our society creates, and new ways of thinking. Gerd, thank you for taking the time to share your point of view. Thanks for listening to Point of View, a podcast by Amdocs. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to share it with your network, subscribe, and leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Stay tuned for our next episode. We'll see you next time.